It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. We start with the worst-kept secret in Washington. Joe Biden's running for re-election. Not with a video today, because that's what you do now. Dropped at 6 o'clock this morning. It opens with the menacing view of the mob attacking the Capitol on January 6th. When I ran for president four years ago, I said we're in a battle for the soul of America. And we still are. The question we're facing is whether in the years ahead, we have more freedom or less freedom, more rights or fewer. This goes on for several minutes with reaction now from the Republican National Committee. Quote, Biden is so out of touch that after creating crisis after crisis, he thinks he deserves another four years. If voters let Biden finish the job, which is the theme of the announcement, which finished the job, inflation will continue to skyrocket. It says crime rates will rise, more fentanyl. We'll cross our open borders. Children will continue to be left behind. American families worse off. And reaction as well from the man Joe Biden may well be running against once again. Donald Trump up with his own video. You could take the five worst presidents in American history and put them together and they would not have done the damage Joe Biden has done to our nation in just a few short years. He starts by zeroing in on the economy, then he gets to other issues, including the border, ends up at the end resolving with his message that the 2020 election was stolen. With that, we bring in someone who covered both presidents. He was there for all four years of Donald Trump and is, of course, in the briefing room now every day in the West Wing with President Biden. That would be Bloomberg White House reporter Jordan Fabian. It's great to see you, Jordan. A lot of folks questioning the timing uh, of this announcement here and why not wait? It's interesting because the president had led his supporters to believe that he could have all the time he needs, wait as long as he could. But the White House was getting a lot of incoming from reporters and mm-hmm. from allies about what the president's timing was. And also a lot of those questions touched on the president's age. Yeah. And that went directly to the question of, of is he going to run again as being the man who is already the oldest U.S. president ever. Mm -hmm. And so people in his inner circle, I think, wanted to put those questions to rest by putting out this announcement that he is, in fact, going to be seeking re-election. And this wasn't the soft launch some uh, talked about, right? He's actually got paperwork. This is a real announcement. Right. He is filed with the Federal Election Commission, which allows him to start raising money. He announced a campaign manager and a deputy campaign manager and also a group of campaign co-chairs. These are effectively people in Democratic Party who can vouch for President Biden among voters and also big donors who he'll need to contribute to this reelection effort. Do we know what's coming up here? Is there any plans to hit the road or the, you know sit with the video and keep watching it over again? More of the latter, Joe. It's yeah. uh, we don't really have a schedule of campaign events at the moment. This 
this announcement really does feel like it was designed to get the monkey off their backs, uh, so to speak, and <laughs> just stop get it out there, stop calling me, stop emailing me, stop texting, he's running, yeah. and, and we're moving on. And look, the president has a clear field on the Democratic side. He is not facing a serious primary challenger, mm-hmm. so he's not really under pressure to campaign. And at the same time, he can use his bully pulpit as president through these official events to get his message out. He's speaking to union group right now. And so mm-hmm. I would expect more events like that yep. rather than campaign style events. Soon they'll learn they'll never get Jordan Fabian off their backs. Thank you, Jordan. It's great to see you. Appreciate the insights today on Bloomberg. As we Bring in the voice of Barbara Perry, professor and director of presidential studies at the University of Virginia's Miller Center. Uh, Barbara is the author of and editor of 12 books on presidential history. And we really wanted a sense of perspective here from someone who has that uh, that sort of view on politics. And, Professor, it's great to have you with us here. Jordan, of course, mentioned Joe Biden's age. This is what we're going to hear about, along with policy disagreements uh, from Republicans for the next year and change. What is this campaign going to look like for an 80-something-year-old man? Do they have to have him out there doing push-ups every day? (laughs) Well, I don't think that. But if for those who watched the video this morning or this afternoon, uh, they will see a little clip of Joe Biden running. So I I think every opportunity that they can take to put him in settings where he's comfortable and where he can show that he is presidential and that he has the physical and mental strength to carry on, uh, more is the better. Uh, But note that this was a campaign video announcement rather than one that was live and on stage. What do you make of that? Is that a value to you? Because he's been criticized for it. But when you look around, uh, you know, Asa Hutchinson did the same thing. I think Nikki Haley had a video. This is what we do now. It's not so much about a live event or a news conference, is it? I think that's so true. So it doesn't look like it's out of the ordinary. And moreover, we are such a visual society and a video society these days at, at all ages Uh, The Miller Center, for example, where I'm at the University of Virginia during the shutdown and during COVID uh, really got a bounce in its uh, online audience, which we've always been looking for uh, nationwide. So that's just where we are now. It's where politicians are. And obviously, uh, we saw this with the January 6th committee and the kinds of video and the kinds of media that they use now, it really captures people. So again, for people who saw the video, we'll see it, we'll see how fast paced it is. Mm-hmm. And I think that meets, again, Americans, particularly younger Americans where they are. But it also the fast pace of it, I think, leads to the message that they want to get out that Joe Biden's up to the task and up to the job. Yeah. Well, he's a candidate now. He's, of course, still the president of the United States, but he's also seeking to keep the job. And it just changes the way that Americans look at the president. Right. So that I guess part of part of the campaign is going to be doing the job, being seen, doing the work of the people from the White House. Yeah, so you've got two points going there, I think. One is that, as we've already mentioned, the theme of, and it looks like this is going to be the the bumper sticker, finish the job. And so you, you have that category of continuing the presidency, but the other factor that you mentioned is coming from the White House. The White House itself is such a symbol. Parts of the White House are such a symbol. So the the Resolute Desk in the Oval Office, the famous East Room, or standing in the uh, on the second floor of the White House with the Washington Monument and the Jefferson Memorial mm. in the back. All these things help to gin up, it seems to me, uh, the the vision and, and image and symbolism of the president himself. He, of course, campaigned four years ago, and we are noting the anniversary of his uh, announcement in 20, 
or for the 20 campaign uh, as a uniter. That was the story, uh, Professor, that he was going to unite the country after these four fractured years under Donald Trump coming out of covid can he still tell that story? He's he's asking for time to finish the job, but the country feels more divided than it might have been four years ago. I'm not sure it's more divided. It seems to me to be as, as at least equally divided. Okay. I think we're just in that time frame right now. We're in that setting, and that is the case around the world. Look at the other democracies around the world and the polarization uh, that is occurring. So it is true that uh, to to be the great uniter, as George W. Bush said he was going to be, it's just so much harder to do that now, unless there's some horrible tragedy like 9-11 that, that r- rallies people around the flag. Hmm. Uh, so I would say that, you know, he probably gets a low mark on, on getting rid of polarization. But what he was also saying, I think this will be another theme in the from the video, was preserving freedom. And obviously, the two sides have different views of freedom. And so that's going to be the the difficult sticking point, it seems to me. Also, with a nod to the abortion issue there, some things don't always need to be said in these ads, do they? Exactly. Well, so we've got a lot of things. I was just going to say, though, you would have noticed a sign of women gathered outside the Supreme Court. That's right. Uh, saying, you know, protect a, a right to abortion, that is health care for women. And the book issue, uh, the notice, the banning of the book. So just these little hints of what he means by protecting freedom. In addition to, uh, he said, there are some people who want to tell you, he said, who you could love. Actually, that should be whom you can love. <laughs> uh, so a little gram- grammar error there. But uh, that also relates, obviously, to marriage equality and that right. sort of thing. Yeah, she did edit 12 books, people. Uh, <laughs> Maybe and went to wanna, Catholic school. Well, maybe you want to run that there. script past Professor Perry. Uh, what's the precedent of of a president running against a former president? We haven't had too many occasions like this. How will that direct the, the, the way this debate takes place? Well, Donald Trump will hope that this turns out uh, to be uh, the 1890s and that it will be a rematch of Grover Cleveland, the former president who was defeated by Benjamin Harrison. And then Cleveland comes back and runs again against Harrison, who's running for a second term, and Cleveland wins. So he's the only president thus far to be a former president running for a non-consecutive second term. And that's what Donald Trump has to hope for. So, yes, we haven't seen this very frequently. uh, But when we did see see it, it worked in the favor of what Donald Trump hopes will work for him. Well, that's interesting because, you know, here you have this sort of the term is in the past that those four years are, are now encapsulated in history books, it's kind of there in a vacuum to be looked at and judged as opposed to a sitting president with rolling issues and developing narratives around him. I'm, which one is better? Which one is worse? I think the the latter is, is worse, as you're saying, that it's, people are feeling in real time what mm-hmm. the president is doing for good or ill. And so it is just the nature of the beast. If you're running as an incumbent, not only do you have a record, but you also have day to day in real time. You're taking actions, you're saying things, you're maybe making a misstep or two, uh, or have a real crisis that you don't handle well. So we see the most recent incumbents who have lost. I mean, Trump lost because of the crisis of COVID. Bush 41 lost because of the crisis over the economy, the same with Jimmy Carter, plus the Iranian hostage crisis. Mm. Uh, And Ford was not uh, previously elected, but he was an incumbent when he lost to Jimmy Carter. And a lot of that had to do with the the misstep that was seen at the time as pardoning Richard Nixon. That is uh, just going to be a fascinating element to watch unfold in in real time, to your point, Professor. Uh, 
when we consider the age issue here, to what extent will that be held against Joe Biden, knowing that he's also running against a pretty old man? We talk about Joe Biden's age, but Donald Trump's only four years behind him, right? That helps a lot for Joe Biden if, if he were running against, and again, we're gonna presume right now that Trump will be the nominee. Yeah. And if he is, uh, there is that just slight age difference. Um, for some reason, even though one would think just by looking at them that and, and hearing the medical reports about Joe Biden as someone who as an octogenarian is in excellent health, uh, was not a smoker or a drinker, so he didn't do the kinds of things that can lead to premature death. Uh, and then again, looking at someone like Donald Trump, who doesn't seem to be in the best shape, uh, one would think it would work to, to Biden's favor. But um, certainly the Republicans and, and clearly Trump will pick up just like the schoolyard bully who calls a kid who wears glasses four <laughs> eyes. Uh, he's going to do his sleepy Joe and, you know, Joe isn't up to the task <laughs> mentally. And I would also point out the historical resonance of John Kennedy versus Richard Nixon. John Kennedy was actually in worse shape in health wise than was Richard yeah. Nixon. And they were only about four or five years apart in age. But Nixon was sick during a, a good portion of the campaign in 1960. And we know that he went on to lose to John Kennedy. And they were seen as being a generation apart, which is it's really amazing. Uh, the yes, way we look at these true. things, at least in the moment. Uh, lastly, Professor, is it wrong for us to assume that this is Biden versus Trump? Well, the good news for Joe Biden, unlike someone like Jimmy Carter or George H.W. Uh, Bush, who had to f try to fend off within their own parties, in the case of Bush 41, he had to fend off the right side of uh uh, Pat Buchanan, in the case of Jimmy Carter, the challenge came from the left, from Ted Kennedy. And neither of those challenges worked out, but they really took a chunk out of the uh, campaign of those two incumbent presidents, and they lost. So I don't think we're going to see much of that, although Robert Kennedy Jr. coming to the fore a little bit uh, will maybe siphon a few votes away from uh, Joe Biden. But yeah. it doesn't appear unless it's someone like DeSantis or Nikki Haley uh, at this point can overcome Trump. So I don't think it's wrong for us to project that this could well mm -hmm. be the ticket on both sides. She's professor and director of presidential studies at the University of Virginia's Miller Center. Barbara Perry, thank you so much for joining us on this historic day. If you're into politics, this is one of the big ones here. And we assemble our panel for a quick pass on this. Of course, Bloomberg Politics contributors Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano. Rick, you questioned the timing of this. Is it too early? You know, I look, I, it, I, if he's going to go out and actively campaign, I think it's a waste of dollars and in, in presidential time uh, away from, you know, looking presidential, uh, which actually I think has more appeal to voters than looking like a candidate. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, his predecessor in the Democratic Party, uh, Barack Obama, uh, announced relatively early and then didn't hold a campaign event for almost a year. So maybe that is the strategy he's yeah. employing. It's one he's close to. Is that the model then, Jeannie? Like Jordan said, he gets the reporter's office back. Now he can hang out for a minute and plan a campaign. That's right. And he can also importantly raise money. We've got fundraisers high level descending on the White House, we understand, on Friday. He needs to raise a lot of money. And I would also know, unlike Barack Obama, he puts Kamala Harris in this video apparently about 11 times, maybe more. So a big, big show of support wow. for Harris. We'll talk more about that. We're just uh, dipping our toe in the water with the panel here. We'll take the deep dive next with Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano on this campaign launch day. 
So much for the soft launch. It's real. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. We're, of course, all assuming that this is Joe Biden versus Donald Trump now that the president has made it official. Well, the former president did so a couple of months ago here, and he was quick to respond. Now, of course, we don't know this is the way it's going to go, but I'd love to walk through the reaction here, not only the Joe Biden video, but the reaction from Donald Trump, because they they both speak volumes. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano are Bloomberg Politics contributors. They make our signature panel here on Sound On. And Rick, I'll tell you, the, the Joe Biden video, for starters, is is very deliberately produced. This is a Hollywood-style production, even though it's only a couple of minutes long. As I mentioned, it starts with scenes... Uh, from the Capitol on January 6th, and he continues uh, to talk about the issues that he thinks will define his campaign, including preserving freedoms. But you know, around the country, MAGA extremists are lining up to take on those bedrock freedoms. Cutting Social Security that you paid for your entire life while cutting taxes for Social very well. Social Security cards and dollar bills flying by. This is a campaign against MAGA, Rick. And we're not sure exactly, at least officially, who the Republican nominee is going to be. Yeah, I thought that that aspect of it was a little curious. I mean, it was a little darker than we're used to seeing from Mm -hmm. Team Biden. You know, he was the sort of uh, light compared to the darkness of the Trump campaign in 2020. Uh, And I think he's sort of taken a page out of the Trump campaign by saying, hey, you know, we've got real issues here. And, you know, as president, I'm trying to address those. But the idea of targeting MAGA itself, you know, what is MAGA, right? Is that Trump? Is that, you know, DeSantis? Is that anybody who gets the Republican nomination? Great Um, question. You know, I think it's kind of one off. And and I'm I'm not sure I would have introduced that as, you know, the announcement campaign. I Mm. mean, it really should have, in my view, been about Biden much less about the Republicans. He's got a case to be made. 51% of his own party doesn't want him to run. Um, You know, maybe he's trying to get them all unified against MAGA, but I I think he didn't even define what MAGA was once he hit it. Dark Brandon was trending on Twitter, at least the last time I looked here, Jeannie. Was this uh, too dark of a vibe for you? Should there have been a more optimistic tone? You know, my view is that in 2020, this is the same vibe we had. Let's not forget his video in 2020 was called The Battle for the Soul of America. This is a continuation of that. So I don't see any difference in that regard. He did not come out in 2020 with a bright, cheery, optimistic message. He said, I am going to stop them from stealing the soul of America. And today he has said, the fight continues. And, you know, I agree, this is heavy on freedom, democracy, rights, democracy in danger. This is, you know, I have beat Trump. We need to keep him out of the White House. And oh, by the way, if it's not him, I'll hedge my bets. Could be Marjorie Taylor Greene, could be DeSantis. Whoever it is, they, the Republicans, 
are, you know, off their rockers. They are crazy. Look what they're going to do from entitlements to tax cuts for the wealthy, guns and abortion. You need me to stop them and I'm here. Mm -hmm. But I see that as a continuation of everything he ran on in 2020. So I don't see this as a difference at all. This is Joe Biden quintessential. The only time in the, that he's run and won for presidency, he ran on the same message. No, there's Dark Brandon. The, the, the Donald Trump reacts video is not remarkable from a visual standpoint. It looks like any number of videos he's done there at Mar-a-Lago. He's got flags behind him. It's like a multi-camera shoot, so they get him on the profile shot as he's speaking to no one. It's kind of bizarre, but it was interesting to walk through it, Rick, because, you know, none of this is scripted by accident. And he, he took the swing at, you know, take the five worst presidents off the top. They'd be, you know, still not as bad as Joe Biden. But then he hits number one issue is the economy and inflation. The second one he digs into, geopolitics. Our military is suffering greatly. Biden has totally humiliated our nation on the world stage, starting with the Afghanistan disaster. Perhaps the most embarrassing event in the history of our country. Then we go to Ukraine. It meant so much to our enemies when they watched that horrible retreat. Russia is teaming up with China. Iran is days away from a nuclear bomb, not even thinkable. Ukraine has been devastated by an invasion that would never, ever have happened. There you go. If I was president. So he walks Then he does, by the way, mention World War Three, which uh, as someone who could have that job again, does seem just the definition of irresponsible. And he resolves with 2020. He's not dropping this one. Listen, you know what happened in the last election? They cheated and they rigged the election. But I promise you this, when I stand on that debate stage and compare our records, it will be radical Democrats worst nightmare because there's never been a record as bad as they have. And our country has never been through so much. So back to the retribution tour, I guess, here, Rick. What do you make of this sort of construction here? He didn't really spend a lot of time on social issues at all. It was economy, geopolitics. They cheated. Yeah, this is straight out of survey research, right? I mean, you know, the number one issue that Biden has vulnerabilities, the most hesitations voters have about him is his management of the economy. His, mm -hmm. his, his approval ratings are in the 30s. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's extremely bad uh, to the level of George W. Bush during the uh, downfall of the economy in, in 2008. So um, that's number one. Uh, you know, he, he wants to be the, the, the global actor. So geopolitics fits into his sort of, you know, uh, I would say campaign strategy for himself, you know, all the peace and tranquility that occurred. Uh, it, he opens himself up to a lot of criticism by the Biden camp because of the deals he cut, for instance, with the Taliban in Afghanistan in advance of Joe Biden's withdrawal. The two of them have, you know, some burden on each other uh, for that, that, that mix up. Yeah. And, and the reality is, he, as you pointed out, Joe, he can't help himself. He's got to hit the grievance trail. <laughs> and, and, and to be honest, I mean, there's not a poll in the world that says that's a good idea. Right. So it's the Donald Trump we know, even though he has some discipline in the first couple of minutes of that video, you know, where he's talking about sort of poll tested good election kind of uh, strategy. He reverts to the one thing that actually really keeps him from being able to uh, get new voters into his coalition. And if he continues that, as has been said by many of his opponents in the Republican primary, he's going to consign the Republican Party potentially to another loss. So is it almost a deterioration of credibility as this flows 
uh, Jeannie from, you know, he hit him with the good stuff, the economy at first, then debatable on Afghanistan and some other issues. He claims the Ukraine war never would have happened. All that arguable. And then he goes for the slam dunk at the end with the, uh, you know, stop the steal stuff, the, the, the 2020 big lie, whatever you want to call it. How do you get a single independent voter to jump on board with that kind of a coda to your message? Yeah, it's the coda that will kill him at this point. I give him credit for starting with the economy, even the geopolitics. But to Rick's point, he can't help himself with the focus on 2020. And, you know, I also would just say I also give him credit because unlike DeSantis, he's not focused on these social woke issues, which another loser when you come to independents and moderates. So he's got the right political instincts for the first two. But the third, he just can't help himself. He's got to go there. But, you know, this is what the Biden team wants. This is what they expect. This is why Biden begins his video with, you know, anything in the world he could begin with. He begins with January 6th and this sort of grainy footage of an insurrection, because what they're going to do is say no matter how much any moderate or independent may like some of the things that Donald Trump did. The reality is this is a president who incited an insurrection at the Capitol and who continues to say what everybody knows is not true, that the election was stolen. He can't accept the loss. That's what they're going to keep coming back to. It's that extremist message that Trump can't avoid. That's why they want to run against against Trump. And, you know, I think that the danger here for Biden, if I see anything on the horizon, is how does he run if it's not Trump? They're trying to say they can pull the same against DeSantis, but can he really? Because his entire message seems to be, I'll save you from Trump. No Trump, it's hard pressed to see how Biden can get people to support him at this point, and that is a challenge for him. Well, it is, and that brings us back to, to where we started this portion of the conversation here, Rick. If you're running against MAGA, can you substitute Ron DeSantis for Donald Trump and keep the same message? Uh, I don't think so. I don't think uh, Ron DeSantis sees himself as a MAGA guy, and I don't think he's going to use that uh, brand. He's not going to be wearing a red hat with that on it for sure. And uh, and so I think it does miss the mark. And that's why I'm so surprised that he's trying to brand the MAGA um, uh, theme in his opening statement as a presidential candidate, because, you know, that may all disappear. And, uh, and, and so I, I think that he's a little vulnerable on that. I think he, he and, and the fact that he didn't talk about the economy at all, didn't actually connect with voters on that, didn't say he has a plan, um, I think leaves him open to immense criticism and also vulnerability with swing voters who that's going to be their number one issue. It usually is. And yep. the fact that they leave that completely out of his video is shocking to me. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano, smart talk here from our signature panel. It's great stuff. And remember, this campaign is going to, at least at, in the in the outset here, be happening against the backdrop of this debt ceiling debate. And we're going to get to that next. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. And so the pieces will be in place, at least we're told, tonight for a potential vote as soon as tomorrow on the debt limit proposal that Speaker McCarthy put forth a few days back. Mark Zandi, who we're going to talk to next hour, takes a swing at the whole plan suggesting that it will worsen unemployment and lower GDP growth. Is that the cost of doing business? We get an update on all of this from our friend Emily Wilkins at Bloomberg Government, of course, combing the halls of Congress for news every day and joins us now. Emily, the debt limit bill gets a vote tomorrow or is that still in flux? Right now, that is still the plan for the debt limit bill to get a vote tomorrow. 
and then it will face another smaller challenge this afternoon when it will be going through the rules committee. It's a little wonky, but basically the rules is the one that kind of puts the tee in the ground and puts the golf ball on the tee and then hands the club to Congress and says, <laughs> okay, take a swing. Got it. Um, and so we're going to see this package go through rules. We're going to see amendments. If we there are members with concerns, we're going to see them. Uh, and I think this is kind of going to be, if there is many grievances to air, this airing of, of grievances and concerns. And we know that some members have them. We know that there are some from the Midwest who are particularly concerned that a biofuel tax credit is going to be cut. We have other members who are concerned a bit about the, the spending levels in general, mm-hmm. um, about exactly how many hours one has to work to apply for federal assistance for various programs. Uh, McCarthy and his team has been working all weekend to try and make sure that everyone is on board. Um, but at this point, there are still a number of members who seem to be holdouts. And he's kind of locking this down, right? No amendments is what we heard, even as, to your point, a number of lawmakers ask for changes or different things to hang on the tree here. Speaker McCarthy says this is the final version. How does that play out in a rules debate? So, I mean, people can always offer amendments and then just not have them accepted. I mean, McCarthy still has a number of allies on the Rules Committee. Um, Of course, he also has some Freedom Caucus members. So we'll see exactly how that winds up playing out. But McCarthy himself has said that he's not making any additional changes to the text. And I was talking with one lawmaker today who was like, look, he's like, I am hoping that in the final thing that we pass, several things are different. He's like, but what we pass tomorrow is not the final thing. What we pass tomorrow is simply to get by into the negotiating table so we can actually put together a final plan. Very few Republicans believe that what they pass tomorrow is actually going to be what winds Mm -hmm. up raising the debt limit. This is simply their opening bid. You don't have any sense of how close he is to 218 at this point, right? We're going to learn this when it goes to the floor. We do know that he has a lot of members who are on board, but there are still members like Matt Gates came out last night and said he wouldn't support the bill. There are a number of other hardline conservatives, and you have a number of more moderate members. Nancy Mace has continually raised concerns with this bill. You've heard Brian Fitzpatrick have some concerns with this bill. Um, and so really, it's kind of a both sides thing where McCarthy can't just sort of appease one group without, you know, angering another. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is why he's taken this position of no changes and why he's really trying to emphasize that the proposal they're putting forward, it's not meant for final passage. It is simply meant to put pressure on the White House to get Biden back to the negotiating table. Real-time update from Emily Wilkins. Thank you, Emily. Bloomberg Congress reporter with us here. Bloomberg government, to be exact, as we reassemble the panel uh, for their take on things here on this night before. Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis are with us, Bloomberg politics contributors. Uh, Jeannie, this is going to happen tomorrow, it looks like. Is this exactly the moment that Joe Biden has been hoping for that Kevin McCarthy dares bring the bill to the floor and it fails? Well, yeah, I mean, if this did fail, and I still think he gets to the 218, this would be a tremendous loss. I mean, you can't underscore, because if he can't get this Republican wish list through his house, Mm. what can he do? I mean, this would be a massive fail. So it's, you know, for his sake, it's got to get through. But, you know, absolutely. Absolutely for Biden, if he couldn't do it, it, you know, it's almost game over to that extent. But, you know, the irony of this entire thing, as you and Emily were just discussing, he's criticizing Biden for no negotiation. And yet you talk to these Republicans, (laughs) he's saying, take it or leave it. There is no negotiating on this. So Mm -hmm. irony of all ironies, he's pulling a Biden at this point. And people like Matt Gates calling his bluff, (laughs) he just can't have more than four of them. He's pulling a Biden, says Jeannie. Rick, I know that you, you see this passing. 
what happens to the Matt Gateses of the world? You know, what what convinces them in the end? Is this an eye to eye talk tonight with the speaker? No, I mean maybe he just uh, takes a walk. He, you know, the speaker can burn you know uh, three or four votes and not have okay. a problem. And and that was certainly Matt Gates's uh, you know reputation during the the speakership. You know, right. it took him forever fifteenth vote to uh, to get you know on board. So. Uh, there are going to be a few holdouts that that are probably going to take a walk on this vote, but it shouldn't shouldn't actually upset the apple cart when it comes to getting something passed. And and I think the speaker's done a very good job of saying, look, it's not about amending this, it's not about perfecting this, it's not about this. It's about giving me the leverage that I can use to get the White House to the table, who have been resistant on doing any kind of deals cutting, you know. And this this starts that process. So uh, it's you have to basically put the blinders on, go down. Cast your ballot and let the speaker then start the process in earnest. And the process, the real one, will then get underway, I suspect, Jeannie, if this passes, assuming it does tomorrow. How long till we see a meeting with Joe Biden? Well, they don't have a lot of time. And I think, you know, if this passes, you know, they they need to get together. And again, Democrats are pushing Joe Biden. We keep cannot wait. I mean, you know, party differences aside, we are playing with the future of this country. So I think you're going to see some push from Democrats. And also, Joe, since I know it's one of your favorite topics, George Santos filing an amendment to increase required work hours. And he's from a purple district. It makes literally no sense. I think he's lost his mind, but it wouldn't be the first time. You are right about that. Filed an amendment with the Rules Committee to to increase the number of, of required work hours to qualify you know, for uh, for food stamps, for Medicaid, he wants that to go from 20 to 30. So is uh, is George Santos making waves here, Rick, or just trying to get us to talk about it? No, I think he's just trying to get us to talk about it. And of course, we took debate today. So yeah, it's, it's easy he's got do. his he's got his way. But, you know, I remind everybody, you know, when 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 Joe Biden was vice president in 2011, he negotiated a deal on the debt ceiling that included you know, uh, uh, spending cuts. And so all he's got to do is reprise his role as speaker mm-hmm. or as uh, vice president to get a deal done here and to say mm-hmm. that he can't negotiate uh, any other terms but a clean debt ceiling is really disingenuous. We don't know when the X date is going to fall. Uh, but as Jack Fitzpatrick said the other night on, on Balance of Power, by the time they name the X date, it's already too late. And I hope that's not true because we could get it this week, Jeannie. The House will be out until May 9th after this week. That means when they come back, they might have a month or so to figure this whole thing out. Is that is that realistic? I say no. I mean, hopefully it is. It seems very, very short because, of course, a month in congressional terms is, you know, but a few like 10 days. So it is a very short window. And, you know, just to go back to Joe Biden, no economy in this rollout video. What we're also hearing is they want to use McCarthy as a foil during the spring and his call for budget cuts. And so they are going to, I think, drag this out for electoral purposes as much as they can to pin these Republicans down on exactly what they are going to cut to make that as public as possible, because he's going to say they're extremists. So watch for this to enter big time into Joe Biden's reelection, you know, uh, push here. Sounds to me like they kicked the can. There's a continuing resolution coming here and all the parties meet sometime in September. We'll see. Rick Davis, Jeannie Shanzano, many thanks as ever. The smartest panel in the business here, of course, on Bloomberg. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. Stay right where you are. This is Bloomberg. 
You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. You've probably heard by now that Harry Belafonte has died. Most people, of course, know him as a pop singer. Calypso singer. And indeed, he is musician, a star performer, but he identified himself first as a political activist who used music to raise awareness, talk issues, reflect the social consciousness of the time. He performed protest music and talked on PBS a couple of years ago about being inspired as a young man living in Harlem in the late 1930s. There was nothing to walk down the street any day and see Robes or Joe Lewis or Dr. Du Bois in Harlem. So our role models were always there. And by the time I came up on the idea of being an artist, uh, I brought with me this mission of activism. And what attracted me to the arts was the fact that I saw theater as a social force, as a political force. Harry Belafonte marched with Martin Luther King Jr. He lobbied for the release of Nelson Mandela and even recorded an advertisement, a TV ad for a young senator from Massachusetts running for president in 1960. I'm seated here, Senator Jack Kennedy. As a Negro and as an American, I have many questions, and I'm sure everyone does, about civil rights, about foreign policy, about the economy of the country, and about things that'll happen. And I want to make it very clear, Harry, that on this question of equality of opportunity for all Americans, whether it's in the field of civil rights, better minimum wages, better housing, better working conditions, jobs, I stand for these things. The Democratic Party under Franklin Roosevelt stood for them. I'm voting for this, Senator. How about you? How about you? A poignant message as the modern civil rights movement was gaining momentum. And as a 43-year-old, John Kennedy was trying to become the youngest man ever elected president. And so we remember Harry Belafonte today. He was 96. Stay with us on Sound On. The fastest show in politics continues next. Shake, 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 Sinora, shake your body line. We're bringing Kaylee Lines here in Washington and conversations with Mark Zandi of Moody's Analytics and former Ambassador Daniel Fried. You know, we're just getting started here on the fastest show in politics. Hour two of Sound On starts right now. My girl's name is Sonora. I tell you, friends, I adore her. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. It's an important state visit at the White House this week, and one that we have not talked about enough. I would dare say the media has not covered enough. As the president of South Korea lands in Washington for high-stakes talks with President Biden. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington, along with Kaylee Lines. This is an incredibly important alliance when you consider the region, Kaylee, not just the peninsula, and that's enough right there with North Korea, but of course, our relationship with China, the tensions in the South China Sea, 
And I could keep going here. The, the next 48 hours are going to be awfully important for these two countries to talk. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we talk so much about the relationship between the U.S. and its Western allies. But in this theater in particular, the South China Sea, the issue around Taiwan, it is also about the other allies in Asia that can serve mm-hmm. as a counterbalance uh, against China, which, as we know, has growing tension with the U.S., not just over the issue of Taiwan and the South China Sea, but also in terms of the war in Ukraine and its perceived alignment with Russia, or at the very least, uh, not support for Ukraine. That's right. Well, it's a great opportunity to talk with Ambassador Daniel Freed, who we haven't had on the program in a while. We're going to cover a number of issues uh, over the course of this conversation, beginning with this one, because this visit takes place against the backdrop of the Pentagon documents leak. And Ambassador, it's great to have you back. Daniel Fried with us live now on Bloomberg. I wonder, just to start off, how much cleaning up the Biden administration has to do here, knowing that there was outrage in South Korea following the leak of these documents suggesting the U.S. listened in on conversations uh, on what was happening inside South Korea's presidential office. What's the president got to say today? This isn't the first embarrassing leak of uh, classified documents from the U.S., um, and it, I hate to say it, but it may not be the last. These things are embarrassing. Um, I don't doubt that the South Koreans were irritated, but the strength of the U.S.-South Korea relationship will help us get past this. There is no question in my mind. We will get past this because it's in the interests of both countries to work together. We have a lot in common, so I think that this week's talks will be good and productive. Well, and it raises the question as to what they are working together for and what they are working together against. Is China the most important topic of conversation for these two countries? Well, of course, North Korea's uh, Mm. dictatorial regime is a threat both to the peninsula and East Asia generally, and so that will have to come up, and it should come up. China is a larger issue. In a better world, China would be contributing to, let's say, this be part of the solution of the problem of North Korea. But now China is creating its own problems. Someone said earlier, I think you said earlier, that the United States has allies not just in Europe, but strong allies in Asia. And that is certainly correct. Japan, South Korea are close to the United States. And we need them and other um, other friends in in the East, like Australia, uh, to deal with the rising challenge of China. It's not the same as the challenge of Russia. It's not as acute. It's not as violent at the at the moment. And I hope it never gets there. Yeah. But that will be the the challenge of dealing with China. We, will be the backdrop, and that will be the more profound area of U.S.-South Korea consultations, I suspect. Mm -hmm. But that said, Ambassador, we talk so much about China and this White House talks so much about China. Does that embolden uh, Kim Jong-un in North Korea? And to what extent is he more dangerous now than he was when Joe Biden became president? He's been dangerous for years. I don't think we should take the temperature constantly and fret and wring our hands about it. He, about him. He is hmm. dangerous. He will continue to be dangerous. And the message we need to send is that he is potentially putting himself in an impossible situation 
if he goes too far. And I think on some level, they may know it. Uh, I think the North Koreans are going to continue their provocations. They are going to continue their um, ballistic missile and nuclear programs. Mm. But I don't think that they are going to actually launch an all-out assault on the South. I don't think they would make the mistake of thinking that the United States would be passive, and we wouldn't be. So I think the there's, their preservation instinct uh, uh, may keep them from doing things that are um, even more dangerous. At least I hope so. Well, on the subject of nuclear power, we also were hearing earlier today, according to state news in Russia, that Dmitry Medvedev, the former Russian president, which it should be known is pretty much known for making uh, threatening comments against the West, the U.S. and its allies, was speaking to a group of uh, a Kremlin youth group earlier talking about the fact that nuclear war risk is rising. Do you actually perceive that? Are we getting closer with each passing day to nuclear war? No, I don't think so. Medvedev says a lot of things. Uh, he specializes in inflammatory hysterical rhetoric. I wouldn't take him seriously. It's amazing that the United States once thought he was a modern, more liberal <laughs> leader of Russia. But Not that sure. was then, and we've learned better. Um, I think the Biden administration has handled Russia's nuclear saber rattling in a, um, a capable manner. I think the Biden administration sent, sent messages to Russia to knock it off, basically messages of the, uh, that conveyed, if you actually use nuclear weapons in Ukraine, there will, be a, there will be serious retaliation from the United States. And my guess, I don't know, but my guess is that we conveyed a, the possibility of retaliation, which was strong enough to um, set the Russians back and not so strong that we could never do it. I think the Biden people handled this well. I think the Russians understand that this is not going to work. It's not going to intimidate the United States. So Russian state media, it's propaganda, Medvedev, they talk about nuclear attacks on London, on Paris, on Washington. It's talk. It's mm. talk. Mm. I think they know Look, the Russians have nuclear weapons, and so do we. So do the British. So do the French. And ours work. I don't think the danger of nuclear war is growing. I think that the Russians are rational and that they have a good appreciation of American resolve. Ambassador Freed, Bloomberg is reporting that Olaf Scholz has invited the Chinese premier uh, for talks in Berlin next month in the latest bid here uh, by Germany's chancellor to, to ease tensions between Europe and Beijing. I wonder if you see this now as the two power centers in Europe, Germany and France, following the Macron visit, convinced that somehow China can be a conduit for peace in Ukraine. It's interesting to me that a lot of German foreign policy leaders uh, were critical, including their foreign minister, was, were, were critical of Macron's um, unfortunate interview and suggested a stronger position. Um, I expect the Germans will try to put uh, the invitation to the Chinese pr uh, premier into perspective. I don't expect there will be a split between the U.S. and Europe on China policy. In fact, if you if you discount the rather extravagant rhetoric of President Macron, there is a lot of common 
commonality between the U.S. and Europe on how to deal with China. We both know that we can't completely cut off trade relations with China. We can't try to freeze them out of the world economy the way we're trying to freeze out the Russians. But we do need to lower our risk profile with respect to China. We need what the the European phrase is de-risking, by which they mean lowering the areas of our vulnerability to China. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen made a speech late last week Mm -hmm. that made that point. We're actually, if you get past the rhetoric and some of the worries, I think we in Europe are pretty close on China. Um, And this this is essential. If we're going to deal with the challenge that China represents, we've got to work with Europe. We've got to work with the G7. And if we do have a common position, we've got the edge. We just have to remember that. Well, and of course, that is kind of a longer term story that the U.S. has to navigate the world with with China in it, whether or not that is a a decoupled world, if you will, or a less globalized one in the longer term, I guess, remains to be seen in the nearer term, though, and specifically uh, with the role of China and what it how it plays into the ongoing war in Ukraine. I understand that just earlier today you were having lunch with the mayor of Kiev, Vitaly Klitschko. What is the tone of those conversations? Is it seen that in order for Ukraine to win this war, China is going to have to play some kind of role? Well, Mayor Klitschko had two messages. One was the Ukrainian people are determined to defend themselves and their country, and they will succeed. And the other message was, after the war, Ukrainians are going to build a democratic rule-of-law country or strengthen their democracy um, in a way that is commensurate with the sacrifice of the Ukrainian people. Those are my words, not his, but that was his message. It was an inspiring one. With respect to China, they are not playing a terribly helpful role. They're not all in on the side of the Russians. They are reserved, but they're certainly not acting as a force to settle the war on anything like um, acceptable terms to anybody. Um, it would be great if they were, but they show no signs of doing so. Hmm. Um, so that's unfortunate. But successful, successful support for Ukraine and Ukraine's victory in this war, that is, if they manage to defend themselves from the Russian invasion, may cause the Chinese to reassess whatever assumptions they may have had about an easy military conquest of Taiwan. Um, The West's response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine was stronger than the Kremlin expected, more sustained than the Kremlin expected. It was not weak. We didn't dither. We didn't wring our hands. We actually backed Ukraine with weapons and economic support. We, the U.S. and and the European, you know, our European friends and allies, That shows that the West and the democratic world, the free world, as we used to say, is not as weak as China may suppose. That is an important message. So helping the Ukrainians succeed is important for peace in Europe. It's important also for stability in Asia. Hmm. Ambassador, at your lunch with Mayor Klitschko, did he bring up fighter jets? You and I have been talking about this request for the better Hmm. part of a year, and they don't have them yet. Well... He was um, he was thanking he was grateful to the United States for all of the help to Ukraine. He was not complaining. He was not whining. He said send weapons, but he wasn't he wasn't there with a shopping list. 
Yeah, he had broader messages of Ukraine's determination, the, the resilience of the people of Kiev, the ones who elected him, and the need to build, uh, strengthen Ukraine's democracy as, you know, when the war is over. Well, on the subject of the war is over, there is a question of when that will happen. The prime minister of Poland, where you served uh, as ambassador to earlier today, was saying that Russia and its public opinion are patient. It could withstand various election and democratic cycles. It is a huge risk we are facing today. What time horizon, realistically, are we talking about, Ambassador? Well, the Poles have a track record of being right about Russia, so I would take what their leaders say seriously. Much depends on the battlefield, and it is possible that the Ukrainian uh, military will succeed, at least partly, in its counteroffensive that many people expect to take uh, place later this spring or this summer. And if so, if it succeeds, uh, they may be in a better position. And the Russians may, even though they don't seem serious about negotiations now, they may have to consider them, especially if the Ukrainians do well. Now, that's not guaranteed. We don't know. The battlefield is a, can be a tricky place. Anything can happen. So we, I suspect we will have greater clarity about the course of the war later this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Russians say that they are determined to fight as long as necessary. Well, right. we'll see. We'll see, Ambassador. Daniel Fried, Wiser Family Distinguished Fellow at the Atlantic Council, former ambassador to Poland, former Assistant Secretary of State for Europe. We thank you, as always, for the insights, Ambassador. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Looks like the debt limit proposal will get a vote tomorrow. At least that's the hope of Speaker McCarthy. The legislation's going to Rules Committee tonight, be on the floor tomorrow. And of course, it's anyone's guess, really, Kaylee, <laughs> if this gets 218 votes. I'm Joe Matthew, along with Kaylee Lyons. Welcome to Sound On. I'm glad you're with us today on Bloomberg Radio. But then what if it did pass? Yeah. What would be the impact? And Moody's analytics, and by that I mean our friend Mark Zandi, the chief economist over there, actually came up with an answer. Yeah, and the answer maybe isn't one that the House Speaker would like uh-huh. to hear, because no. according to Moody's, the Limit Save Growth Act could have some pretty uh, downbeaten near-term economic uh, growth implications if it were to be passed as it stands now. This is assuming that the bill in question becomes law, which we know isn't necessarily the intention. This is intended to be kind of an opening move in what McCarthy hopes will be negotiations uh, with the White House. But it will inform a final product, so it's worth looking at what's in here. Yeah, so let's do that now and dig into it more with Mark Zandi himself. Again, he is chief economist over at Moody's Analytics. Mark, great to have you back on Bloomberg. Thank you, Kaylee. It's good to be with you. So as I said, I was really struck by this research note. Your essential thesis is that McCarthy's bill could bring a real hit to economic growth. You say that GDP at the end of 2024 would be 0.65 percentage points lower than in a clean debt limit scenario, and unemployment would be higher. Walk us through how you got there. 
Sure. Uh, it's pretty straightforward. Uh, the Speaker's plan calls for significant cuts in uh, discretionary government spending, federal government spending, to the tune of about $120 billion between last year and uh, the next fiscal year. That's about a half a percent of GDP. Uh, and then, of course, when you cut those kinds of programs, there are a lot of essential services and government uh, income support programs. You get these so-called multipliers. So these are the kind of knock-on effects of you know, the uh, loss of, of, those, of that spending. And so the uh, overall impact, at least in the first year after the passage of the legislation would shave six, seven tenths of a percent off the GDP. So that's, mm-hmm. in a nutshell, how uh, you get there. Even in the absence of this bill actually becoming law, which again is still a huge question mark, what do you think the likelihood of a recession is at this point? Is it inevitable? No, it's not inevitable, uh, but it's high, obviously. I mean, uh, very uncomfortably high. I mean, we're in a world of high inflation and in the Federal Reserve that been pushing up rates very aggressively to try to quell that inflation. And, you know, you go back historically and look at previous periods with high inflation, high interest rates, and uh, more often than not, you end in recession. So uh, I think recession risks are very, very high. I do think we've got a fighting chance to make our way through. I do think fundamentally the economy is in a pretty good spot. You know, the fundamentals are pretty good. I mean, I think we got nailed by the pandemic and the Russian war in Ukraine, and, you know, we're still trying to kind of navigate around the ill effects of all of that. But uh, but the fundamentals are good. And so the economy is showing a fair amount of resilience in the face of some pretty significant blows. Uh, of course, the most recent being the banking crisis. So, you know, I, I think we have a fighting chance, but only if uh, policymakers you know, get it roughly right. And what that means is that's got to be pretty close to ending its rate hikes, hopefully sooner rather than later. And obviously, most importantly, lawmakers, Congress and the administration, you have to get it together and, uh, and pass a piece of legislation increasing the debt limit and end this drama that's starting to, to develop. You mentioned the Fed a couple of times, Mark. Is Speaker McCarthy essentially proposing to do the Fed's job for it? He, he seems like he might be giving Jay Powell a break here if that ends <laughs> up with rate cuts at some point in the near future. Well, that's one way of thinking about it, Joe. Uh, yeah, I mean, if you push the economy into recession, I mean, the Fed's going to have to cut. Well, you, you would think that's going to knock the wind out of it. Uh, it. What remaining wind is left in inflation, and, and the Fed will have to start cutting interest rates. I mean, you know, financial markets, as you know better than I, are already uh, discounting some pretty significant rate cuts later this year. Uh, and that has nothing to do, that's even before even considering anything related to the debt limit and Speaker McCarthy's legislation. So. Yeah, I mean, I think if, the, if uh, Speaker McCarthy's legislation is passed in its entirety, you know, it will mean the Fed's going to have to be backtracking here pretty quickly because the economy, if not in recession, will be pretty darn close. Well, and of course, you have to factor in the recent banking crisis to that, which you alluded to earlier, Mark. How much do you expect that that recent turmoil in the banking sector is going to weigh on economic growth, is going to weigh on lending? Do you think we're heading for a credit crunch? Yeah, it's a, it's a, head, a headwind. It's just a question to what degree. Uh, you know, rate, uh, I'll have to say, you know, my expectation a few weeks ago in the immediate wake of the uh, of the crisis was that it would shave about a half a point off of GDP in the coming year. And the key link would be through, as you say, tighter lending standards and less credit availability for businesses and for consumers. Uh uh, and it's still early days where we still don't have a lot of data points, and so we're getting a lot more anecdotes than data at least so far. But the, the anecdotes feel better than I would have thought. I mean, lenders are clearly tightening, 
lending is clearly weakening, but so far not to the degree that I was fearful of just a few weeks ago. So I feel pretty, I feel better about that than I did, you know, uh, in the immediate wake. But nonetheless, having said all of that, obviously, you know, a lot of uncertainty here and uh, a lot to play out over the next few weeks, few months. To come back to what Speaker McCarthy is trying to achieve, he wants to pull back on spending because as much as we can talk about the economic ramifications of what, you know, a lower fiscal impulse means for the economy, there also are economic ramifications of high debt levels, right? I mean, how should we be thinking about that? Yeah, I totally agree with that. I mean, we got a long, we got some real significant fiscal issues. I, I think this, though, discussion around cutting discretionary spending is really a sideshow and, you know, not productive because discretionary spending has been falling steadily, in, at least in terms of GDP. It's a very small piece of the pie, and it's just not going to address any issues. It just creates a lot of sturm and drang and drama and at the end of the day, it's not going to help, you know, significantly in terms of addressing our long-term problems. I mean, clearly the problems are, are centered around the mandatory programs like uh, Social Security and more significantly Medicare and, and, and Medicaid. That's really where the lawmakers need to focus. But they can't do that in the heat of the battle over a debt limit increase. This, you know, this is some; these are big programs require very careful consideration and thought, the deliberation. It's going to take some time, and mm-hmm. you can't do that, you know, in a few weeks, few months. So. This debt limit drama is very unproductive. It's not helpful in addressing our long-term fiscal problems. Well, that's right. So just to, to zero in on that a bit more while you're still with us, uh, Mark, Sandy, at what point do you start worrying? Maybe you're there already. I feel like I can hear it a bit in your voice, but the market's been kind of whistling past the graveyard on this, at least the stock market. I know the bond market is waking up a bit, but knowing that the, the, the Congress is about to go on recess again, knowing the X date could be sooner than first planned, it seems like the odds are getting worse with each day that that Speaker McCarthy and Joe Biden don't talk, and no one expects this plan to get through Congress. So, when when do we start worrying about the cliff? Well, I'm worried about it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is going to be pretty ugly, pretty messy. I mean, I think the next thing that will happen though would be that lawmakers will agree to kick the can down the road that they're going to marry the debt limit decision around the decision of, for the fiscal year 2024 budget. You know, that's funding the government after September 30th yep. uh, and keeping the government open and, and not allowing a shutdown. And so by so doing, you know, I think they'll, they'll have to address those two issues. But that's that, that kicks the can. It gives, buys them a little bit of time. The drama will calm down. Uh, that's my expectation. But Having said that, you know, uh, September come, will come here pretty quickly. Yeah, right. And we're going to be right right back at it. And, of course, the economy is going to be even weaker, you know, come September uh, and more vulnerable to anything that goes wrong. So I, I am very worried about it. I think, you know, this, this doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Even though you've seen this movie, maybe that's actually the reason why you're worried. You've seen this movie too many times. Well, I've seen the movie, and this movie, <laughs> and I think we all know the ending. Yeah. This, it feels like that between now and the ending is going gonna, is gonna to be different this time. <laughs> This it's one. just not going to be as, you know, as uh, uh, as graceful, if that's the word. I can't yeah. think of a better word, uh, as uh, has been the case in the past. This this is going to be, just given the politics, our political uh, kind of discord, and just the kind of the idiosyncratic makeup of the Congress uh, at this point in time, I, this, this doesn't feel very good to me. Yeah, this one's a little more of an action movie than we prefer, maybe more of a horror yeah, movie. there you go. Mark, great to have you, and thanks for sharing your insights. Mark Zandi is the chief economist, of course, at Moody's Analytics. And, Mark, great to have you back today on Bloomberg. Anytime, Joe. It was good to chat with you guys. Take care now.
Always a pleasure to spend time with Mark Zandi, and it's a forecast that we need to factor in again here, uh, Kaylee, not necessarily because this is going to pass. No one's predicting that. I don't think even Speaker McCarthy would tell you that. (laughs) But components of it will end up in a final bill. Yeah, I mean, if ultimately what this comes down to is that a Republican Party, which does have leadership of the House of Representatives, wants to pull back on spending, Mm -hmm. we do have to start thinking about the longer term economic ramifications of that, what that you know, lack of a fiscal impulse ultimately is going to bring or not bring for the U.S. Absolutely. economy. And an interesting wrinkle on what it means for the Fed, because that yeah. will change the, the the whole dynamic for the Fed as it makes decisions about the year going forward. Thanks for listening to the Sound On podcast. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already at Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. And you can find us live every weekday from Washington, D.C. at 1 p.m. Eastern Time at Bloomberg.com. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.